This is the Enoughism podcast about living with enough already. I'm just a minimalist who wants more. Warning: This show may change your life. Hello and welcome to episode one of Enoughism. Why does decluttering feel so good? If you're here. You probably have an interest in minimalism. Good timing on that, by the way. The average American has three hundred thousand items, according to LA Times. I don't even know how you get stats like that. Does someone sit there and, I mean, once you hit a hundred thousand, does that include things like forks and paper clips? I don't know. One in ten Americans, according to the New York Times, rents out a storage unit. The average American woman, according to Forbes, owns one outfit for every day of the month. When you think of a minimalist, you might think of someone who can very easily count and itemize all their items. They probably don't have three hundred thousand things. They probably don't have to store stuff they don't use or need. And hey, they probably do laundry like every day. Well, the term minimalist might also conjure up some stereotypes for sure. Immediate images of a soul-searching, semi-wannabe hipster wearing head-to-toe black, with nothing but a passport and a glimmer in his eye, spending life as a digital nomad and a never-ending holiday, might be one image you have. Or maybe a minimalist to you is someone whose wardrobe consists of not much really beyond some leggings, canvas sneakers, and no more than a handful of plain white T-shirts. I know the. Three 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 project has been floating around for some time among the minimalist community, and the idea behind that is that you have, I believe, it's thirty three items, and you cycle through them, clothing items, and you cycle through those for a period of time. Some people include things like accessories, scarves, shoes, in those thirty three items. Other people say, oh no, they're not included, and it's an interesting concept to really define. How minimalist you are in terms of how extreme you are? Are you a better minimalist because you have less things? For some minimalists, owning thirty things is better than owning three hundred thousand things. I don't believe that minimalism is a competition with an end goal. I think it's a forever process. I think that our relationships with our things are always changing. And if you are a minimalist, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't buy things. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't walk past a store and say, "Wow, that's a really cool item I see in the window." Whatever it is, that might add value to my life. And what that value is is very different depending on the minimalist, just like depending on the person. Maybe a minimalist to you is someone who lives in a blindingly bare, light-filled studio apartment, and one of those cool cities—you know, the ones that skip all the shitty seasons. Their home is perhaps like an Etsy store threw up inside of a Pinterest board. Their walls are covered in just enough greenery to make it homey, not that crazy plant lady kind of homey, you know, just that delicious kind of homey that makes you want to throw everything away. Perhaps you have a burning yearning to live a different kind of life. One with both less and more. The thing is, can you really be a minimalist in today's modern world? I mean, is getting a neon green manicure for St. Patrick's Day really minimalist? It could be, if that's important to you. How many pairs of socks should a minimalist own? Is three better than six? What if you only own three, but then you end up replacing them every year? Is that better than carrying around ten pairs of socks or twenty pairs of socks? I think these questions are really important to ask yourself. Should your clothes, as a minimalist, be all black or all white? 
are you allowed to wear color? I personally have a lot of color in my wardrobe. I tried the capsule wardrobe where everything was black, white, neutral, and gray. It's very easy to shop because you can immediately rule out what you don't want to bring into your home. At the same time, after about a year or two, I found that I just felt very dull and very dismal. It's very, very easy to match your clothes and to put things together quickly. So I probably own about 30 items of clothing. Most of them are dresses. And my reasoning for that is I got really tired of taking out a shirt and saying, wow, this shirt's really nice, but it only goes with these pair of pants. And these pair of pants are in the wash right now. Or, oh, I really wanna wear this sweater, but this sweater, I can only wear it with these jeans. But if I wear these jeans, I only can wear them with these shoes because the hem of the pants is just a certain length, but it's raining outside. So if I wear these shoes, my toes will be exposed to the elements. And I just found myself making all these micro decisions that were really crazy when I was trying to get dressed in the morning that were driving me insane. So I decided to only own dresses. When it's cold, I wear them with tights and I wear them with stockings. When it's not cold, I wear them with bare legs. I have boots, I have sandals, I have heels, um, but not many, just enough to get me by. And then if I feel like spicing it up a little bit, I have beautiful colored scarves. I have a bright red lipstick. I have really fun earrings. Um, I have some very interesting jewelry, the kind of jewelry that is very special to me. It's not necessarily expensive, but it's just interesting to look at. And even if I have a plain black dress, you put on a really cool hat, you put on a really beautiful scarf, you put on a really interesting lipstick, and all of a sudden you feel special. You feel like you're getting ready not only for yourself, but you're getting ready for the world and you have that kind of pep on your step. I also have outfits that are incredibly versatile. I have a dress that I wear around the house as a nightgown, for lack of a better word, but I've also worn it to black tie events and cocktail hours. It's very soft and you can put a blazer over it and a really cool necklace and all of a sudden it's very sophisticated. At the same time, you can lounge in it. So I really look for pieces that have different purposes. Even a scarf, for example. You can take a scarf and you can tie it over your shoulders and kind of turn it into a shirt and make a whole new outfit of it. Um, it's very easy to kind of throw onto your purse. So instead of, say, bringing a jacket, you can really be a minimalist when you're walking around because you can fold up a scarf pretty small and put it into a handbag or throw it in a backpack. And you can put it in your, over your hair if it's raining. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. Being a minimalist is about minimizing your thoughts and cutting out the noise. Minimalism isn't just about your things, it's about your mind. Minimizing your thoughts and cutting out the noise, slowing down in a fast-paced world, working backwards, stripping yourself of the identity you've created for yourself, and essentially deprogram yourself back to basics. Maybe you know someone who has Marie kondo their home and felt really good afterwards. I personally came across Marie Kondo's book, The Magic of Tidying Up, when I was pretty far in my minimalism journey, or so I thought. And I remember there was one particular part of the book where she talks about your key ring and going through your keys. And it was something that I hadn't considered before. And every time I would go to unlock my door, I would always kind of stumble, oh wait, which key is it? And it would take me not long, maybe three or four seconds to figure it out. But I took a little bit of nail polish I colored one of the keys with a bright red. 
I would look down at my keychain and say, oh, the bright red key is the one that opens my door. And it really freed up a lot of mental clutter for me. They say that when you are stressed throughout the day by little tiny things that you might think are very small annoyances, just like that, it actually sends you into a great deal of continuous stress. So minimalism is also not just about your things, but about finding little ways to really kind of clear your mental clutter. I personally write things down. I love bullet journaling. I have lists for everything, and it feels so good to just get things out of my mind and get them down on paper, especially when I'm manifesting or when I am kind of creating goals for myself. There's something about just writing it down on a piece of paper and looking at it and making it real that is very powerful. And when you have your to-do lists, when you write stuff down, it really helps just clear the space in your mind and make room for what matters. You might be one of those people who says, oh, I can remember everything. I can take mental notes. I don't need to write stuff down, but just try it. You might be surprised at how good you feel when you don't have to remember everything. I don't know exactly where I read this, but I remember seeing somewhere that we consume more information in one day than people used to in an entire year of their lives. According to QZ.com, Americans spend 11 hours a day consuming media. So obviously you're listening to this podcast right now. That's consuming media, and that's cool. I obviously support that. But think about that. 11 hours a day consuming media. So that can obviously be a wide range of things. That can be watching TV. That can be listening to the radio. Um, that can be reading billboards. That can be scrolling through social media. And there are so many ways to consume. I think it's important in our lives to have some kind of a balance of consumption and creation. I can do a whole another podcast on this, but I believe in creating our news feeds. When you, for example, have an Instagram account or a Twitter account, follow accounts that inspire you. Follow accounts with information that will lift you up, that will teach you something, so that when you go on your feed, you're kind of in a little community, whether that's baking, whether that's business, whether that's minimalism, whatever it is, there's so much noise. And right now in this time of pandemic, we're in this kind of weird cross section with consumption where we do need to get information that helps us make decisions because you have to take care of yourself as well. And I know people say, oh, you know, if you're not consuming the media, you're not staying informed. I think it's okay to challenge that and to say, you know what, I need to take care of myself. And if something happens, you know, I can talk about it constructively with someone, but so many headlines are meant to just trigger emotions. And many people don't even read articles. They don't even watch the full videos. They read a headline, and if it happens to agree or disagree with their views, they immediately form an opinion about it, and they don't really seek to grow. I think, you know, challenge yourself. Read articles, read newspapers, follow accounts that challenge your views so that you can expand. So one question I've pondered heavily as I continue my own minimalist journey is, why does it feel so good to get rid of your stuff? When you declutter a room, you feel empty, you feel light, you feel free. Why is that? And one of my theories is, you know that feeling 
when you're in a dark, cramped room or a dark, cramped apartment or you've been inside at work all day and you finally step outside. It's a beautiful day. The birds are singing. The sun is shining on you and you just feel such a sense of relief and joy. Or maybe you get that feeling when you're taking a hike or when you're outside. I think that same kind of feeling is related to how you feel when you declutter and you get rid of stuff and you let go of belongings that no longer serve you. So the feelings might not be identical for you, but I think if you can really focus on how you feel when you're in a situation like that, I think that's important. Now, let's step back a little bit. I have an example. So in Native American culture, according to the Sherman Indian Museum's website, a woman who was about to give birth spent a great deal of time in nature by herself. During this time before a big life transition for her is about to occur, she focuses on calming and quieting her mind, connecting to the smell, sights, and sounds of the mountains, the earth, the sky, and the stars. Essentially, she's making space for what's to come. She gives birth by herself. After her child is born, an experience the mother executes solo, she still stays in nature for a while, with her newborn before they both join back into the family and into their societal circles. Together, child and mother learn to listen, to feel, and to experience life well beyond their physical bodies and the thoughts that seem to run those bodies. According to a couple of sites, one of them called teachinghistory.org, another shermanindianmuseum.org, pregnant women from the Mohawk and Mahican tribes living in what's now New York, quote, depart alone to a secluded place near a brook or a stream and prepare a shelter for themselves with mats and coverings provided with provisions necessary for them. They await their delivery without the company or aid of any person. They rarely are sick from childbirth and suffer no consequences from the same, end quote. Now, it's perhaps worthy of note that there is mention within these sources, as I was reading them, about how such birth descriptions apparently allegedly, aren't too accurate because they were primarily written by European men who weren't allowed to attend or see a woman giving birth. So that's perhaps a topic of a whole new podcast, but hopefully the concept itself still resonates. But getting back to the point, compare this birth experience, for example, to that of a typical new Western mother's experience. So this Western mother may be overstimulated from long before her final trimester, with societal pressure of her experience to be a certain way based on societal preconditioning. Maybe she attends several baby showers with pink and blue balloons everywhere. Maybe she writes up a bunch of Amazon wish lists where people give her gifts for the baby. Maybe she has a gender reveal party with pink or blue smoke that come out of a balloon and she gets 200 likes on Instagram for it. Maybe she's obsessed with painting the new nursery with organic white paint. I don't know. But in short, the idea is that she's a little stressed. She might confuse this stress with excitement. But at the end of the day, it might really all just be stressing her out. She goes into labor. Let's say her ambulance ride to the hospital ends up costing as much as her mortgage payment. More stress. And then all these questions arise. Should she take mommy and me classes to breastfeed or to bottle feed? The list of internal conflicts she experiences and her expanding to-do list, just because, goes on. So, 
this is a very different kind of experience, and obviously everyone has a different experience, but there's a big contrast to being alone in nature versus kind of the bye-bye-bye mentality that many mothers have, and many fathers as well. Again, this is not all mothers, of course, but maybe after her child is born, she favors slapping an iPad in front of him to keep him quiet so she can work from home while uninterrupted on Zoom. I've seen this many times on the subway or after dinner when there's a little baby and they're just watching videos or swiping on the phone for hours, just staring. And this is the most important time of their lives. And how is that child going to grow up? So ideas like this are important because the bottom line is what you surround yourself with and how you craft your own experiences, whether they are big milestones like having a baby or smaller milestones like cleaning out your closet yesterday. These experiences ultimately shape who you become. Perhaps the modern child staring at their iPad from an early age will grow up conditioned to yearn for more. Instead of learning the power of simplicity immediately after leaving the womb, like the Native American child did. The Native American child grows up immediately exposed to things like streams and deer and fall foliage, things that lift us up spiritually. And yes, you can watch a video on an iPad as a two-year-old of a video of deer and foliage and streams, but it's probably not the same thing. Modern society is slowly catching up to this kind of a mindset. There's something called forest bathing, which you may have heard of, for example, which is essentially the art of spending a lot of time in the forest to improve your health. Western society has been familiar with this concept essentially since the 19th century. I'm sure, obviously, people have known about this for a very long time. According to Forbes, which mentions a study in the Journal of Environmental Research from the University of East Anglia, this is why so many parks during this time period, the 19th century, were built in cities. Now, it's not exactly rocket science that when you step outside on a gorgeous summer day compared to being in a dark, cramped office or bedroom, you feel alive. Yes, being in nature reduces your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate, all that good stuff, but it also connects you back to who you are. It strips you of your identity, just like getting rid of your stuff strips you of your identity. Every time you throw another item away, you're one step closer to your minimalist journey. Perhaps you're also one step closer to living the life you're intended. And again, this isn't something that ends just because you've become a minimalist. There are many minimalism podcasts and YouTube channels that talk about the process of becoming a minimalist. What happens after? With both nothing and everything all around you, my experience has been that my identity kind of dissipates. I am no longer my name, my job, my favorite cocktail. I am so much more than that. By stripping those kinds of things away. And those are ideas that my stuff is tied to. You know, for example, let's say that there's a beautiful piece of artwork that really resonates with me, but maybe it's a picture of someone who is alone by themselves. But maybe I don't want that in my life. This is, I believe this is from Marie Kondo's book, this concept, um, The Magic of Tidying Up. And this really resonated with me. If you have something in your space that kind of projects an energy you don't want in your life, you're going to bring more of that into your life. And people like Abraham Hicks talk about this as well. Um, the energy that you 
generate and reflect outwards also reflects back to you. Essentially, it's the idea of karma. So in that sense, getting rid of photographs or pieces of art in your house that project images that you don't want for yourself. Maybe you don't want to be someone standing alone in a picture. Maybe you want to be standing next to the love of your life. So maybe it's those kinds of things that you need in your life to project that outwards and then again, back inwards to you. Essentially, minimalism is about blending in with your environment. And the irony is that your environment becomes cleaner and clearer, and that's what you're blending into. A mindset that is also cleaner and clearer. I think in many ways, that's why you feel so good when you declutter your stuff. It's because you suddenly recognize every item in your house or space or office or whatever you're looking to change has an energy to it. Let's say, for example, you own a beat-up pair of tennis shoes. You know, the kinds where your big toes stick out when you put them on and you can only wear them when it's not raining outside. But you wear them. You wear them because they're your favorite shoes. You've worn them since you were in high school. And in high school, you were a famous track star. So putting on those shoes reminds you of how many miles you've run, how many miles you've walked, and it reminds you of running races and being a champion. And you're no longer a champion right now. Maybe maybe you're a champion in other ways, but your, your track days are long over. So those shoes trigger a bunch of memories for you. And maybe you think that those are good memories, but maybe they're actually bad memories. Maybe you're holding on to something that's never coming back. Maybe you were a track star and that's great, but now you need to move on and find a new passion. We all have items like that in our lives that kind of represent people that we used to be or people that we want to be. But that being said, those verbs, used to and want to, even though we ourselves are in the center of those verbs, It's not an accurate depiction of who we are. One important question to ask yourself, and this is, again, a continuous question throughout your life, is what would happen if you got rid of these shoes? Sad emotions may come up for you. Recognize that these kinds of sad emotions will also come up when you see the shoes there right in front of you. Maybe getting rid of a sentimental item is hard for you because by doing so, you're also getting rid of the emotion. And you want to cling to that emotion because that emotion is part of your identity. The key to decluttering intelligently is removing all items from your life that trigger negative emotions. And the idea is to let the sunlight back into your life. When all that's left over among your material possessions makes you happy, deeply happy, not just pretending to feel happy because a certain item brings you a sense of status or creates a role that you've trapped yourself willingly into over the years. For example, oh, I'll take up sewing again. I'll keep my sewing machine. Or, oh, I might need those college transcripts one day, but maybe you haven't actually used them in years, and maybe you don't actually need them. On that note, I was recently listening to the Minimalist podcast, and they talked about should you get rid of items that you only use once a year? And their short answer was, give yourself a time frame, say two weeks, two months. I don't think it matters too much what it is, but if you don't use it on that time frame, get rid of it. I think it's a lot more complicated than that because there are a lot of items that you might only use once a year. But when you do, oh, it's a great experience. So for example, a snowboard. Maybe you live in a warm climate. Maybe you use that snowboard once a year when you go down to Colorado. So ask yourself, does that bring you joy? 
Marie Kondo famously asks, does this item spark joy for you? So when you see an item that triggers that kind of emotion for yourself, instead, think about your life values. Step away a little bit from your life tied to that emotion. So if you really hate using that snowblower, and hate might be a strong word, but if you strongly detest using that snowblower, ask yourself, you know what? Is it more valuable to me to have a financial transaction where I pay someone money to come and take care of the snow removal so that I don't have to do it myself. It's these kinds of breakthroughs tied to your stuff that are essentially the secret to improving the overall quality of your life. According to a study from the Journal of Marketing, taking a picture of your items before you throw them away, especially if they're sentimental, helps people relieve the stress that's tied to these items. Maybe you take a picture of those running shoes before you throw them away. This way you have it and you can look at it on your phone or on your computer, whenever you want to. And maybe that picture does the exact same thing as looking at those shoes in the bottom of your closet. The other thing to consider in relation to your stuff is we live in a world where our fight or flight responses are always on, all the time. There was one time I had a Fitbit and I was checking my heart rate and I noticed the day before I had a huge spike in my heart rate at around 2.15 in the afternoon. And I was thinking to myself, I wasn't doing anything at that time at 2.15. What happened to make my heart rate spike so high? I didn't, I wasn't working out. I wasn't doing anything that would trigger my heart rate that high. And I realized it was a piece of news that came into my email that stressed me out. It wasn't a particularly shocking email, but it was something that triggered an emotion within me. And it really surprised me to see that. When we're constantly under this kind of stress, and this is the same kind of stress that people a long time ago used to experience when they heard a rustling noise in the woods next to them and thought, oh my gosh, is that a bear about to eat me? Well, you're under this kind of stress all the time. That's why doing things like making sure your running shoes take up space in your phone's cloud storage versus in your closet, if you do that over and over and over again, no matter how small, all those little action items will clear your mind. Yes, ask yourself, does this item spark joy, like Marie Kondo famously says, but also go deeper. Ask yourself, does letting go of this item spark room in my heart for something brighter? Does letting go of this item align with who I am and with who I'm not? Work to think of yourself not related to your name, your job, your race, your gender, or your favorite cocktail. Realize who you are when all of that falls to the wayside. That is who you really are. You've made it to the end of the Enoughism podcast. Thanks for listening. Can't get enough of Enoughism? Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at I am Enoughism. This podcast is also available on YouTube. Questions or comments, drop me a note at enoughismpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. I'll see you next time.